Hello, it's Martin here. Just wanted to give a quick disclaimer before we get into the episode. This was recorded two days before they announced the new Buffy audio drama. And in this episode, we talk about how much we would like one. So I just wanted to put it out there that this was recorded before we knew. If you're unaware, there is an audible audio drama called Slayers coming out soon. And it's set 20 years after the events of the TV series. And it focuses on Spike. The entire cast of Buffy is reprising their roles, and both Joe and I are very, very excited about this. And of course, when it's out, we will start covering it for the podcast. Okay, let's just jump straight into the episode. Hello and welcome to episode two of Bite Me, a Buffy podcast. I'm Martin and joining me once again, as always, is my good friend, Joe Ford. Joe, how are you doing? I'm fantastic. Thank you very much. So happy to be here. We've got the difficult first album out now. We're in sophomore territory. I feel like we're running. How do you, how do you feel today? I'm all right. I'm just hot, man. I've had enough of this heat. It's, it's going. Don't worry. By the end of the week, we're going to be in the early 20s. We'll be complaining about how cold we are. I'm never happy. Do you know? In fact, do you know, if I was living in California like Buffy, I'd be bitching all the time. Well, it's not so bad over there. I, I spent some time in California, but everywhere's got air conditioning. Oh, of course it does. Yeah. I went with my family and my mum ended up buying a jumper at a restaurant. Like, a, you know, you go in restaurants, they sell their merch everywhere in the US. So it'd be like some little restaurant that's not a chain or anything, but it's got a jumper. So she'd go and buy buy that to wear because it was just so cold in the restaurant. But anyway, we're not here to talk about past family holidays. <laughs> we're here to talk about the second episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, The Harvest. Mm. What were your initial thoughts of this when you first saw it? What, when I very first saw it or when you I saw very it? very first saw it. Ah, oh, amazing. Yeah, no, they, well, the entire two-parter, like I said last week, felt really, really confident. But I don't know how much genre TV you've watched. With two-parters, yeah, there is, they're notorious for not sticking the land in. So they can get their hooks into you with that first episode. And then the conclusion inevitably is a disappointment. Well, may I say Buffy the Vampire Slayer is coming in with episodes one and two, kicking the trend, because I think the harvest is stronger than Welcome to the Hellmouth. It's a brilliant conclusion. Oh, absolutely. I remember when this went out on BBC Two, they played the entire thing as one feature-length episode. It works that way, doesn't it? I think that's a much better way to watch it. You know what then you lack is that fabulous cliffhanger where Luke, in slow motion, comes down onto Buffy. And it's a brilliant cliffhanger, so I wouldn't want to lose that. But yeah, no, it, it, it's, it's a very smooth watch if you just watch the two episodes back-to-back. So I watched this for the first time yesterday in about 10 years. And I actually picked up on something that I've never spotted before. Yes, you've been enticing me with this tidbit, but not telling me what it is. Okay, so Cordelia and Harmony are really excited to go to the bronze because there's no cover. What does that mean? It means there's no cover charge. They're not going to pay to get into the bronze. When you cut to the bronze, the bouncer's outside counting his fistfuls of money that he's been taking <laughs> people. He is. You know, in reality, probably the script editor or who uh, the line producer or whoever for that day just hasn't realized. But I'd like to think it's that guy's last day and he's like, I need to make a little bit of a windfall. What can I do? Well, I'm going to charge these kids 
five dollars to get in because what are they going to say they're going to want to come in if you stole some money in the 90s and moved towns they weren't finding you he doesn't check any of the students ids at all but he asks for the vampires so what i think is happening i reckon the bronze has under 21 nights okay i bet they try and weed out anyone who's over 21 so he probably thought well yeah i'm ripping these kids off but I've still got to do my job. I can't let these pervy older people get into this under-21s club. Can I just say, right, you are the perfect example of fandom here, okay? You've <laughs> taken what is actually a director's goof and created a whole story around it. Yeah, you know what? I didn't notice that at all. What I did notice is the fact that Cordelia says to Harmony, we're both noticing goofs in the same point. Oh, yeah, it's no school tomorrow, so we're going to the bronze. And then at the end of the story... The next day is a school day. <laughs> I hadn't picked up on that either. Yes, it's full of bloody goofs, this one. But, you know. Uh, what would have been really funny is, you know, the, vamp- the vampires, they grab that bouncer, they throw him in, and then you get yeah. the one who stands by the door. What would have been really funny is if he started charging people to come in. Yeah. <laughs> he was charging them to go to their deaths. I think that would be hilarious. And you know what? Give it a few years and Buffy would be that dark, right? That, <laughs> that sequence in The Wish, I'm terrible. You have to stop me doing this because I go off to other episodes all the time. That sequence in The Wish, do you remember where they created that machine that sucks out blood from people? Yes. It's like industrialised blood sucking. You know, they do get very uh, as the sh- Can I um, ask you a question about the internet, please? Because I feel on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the internet is in its infancy at this point, and it can do whatever they want it to do. Because Willow's there, she's pulling up plans from the sewage system, you know, government government plans and all sorts. I don't think this information is genuinely available. Do you? No, but she says that she uh, she cracked it. I, I love watching stuff from the 90s that has the internet. Yeah. The internet is just a magic wand back then. It can do everything and nothing depending on what the showrunner or the director wants it to be. Nothing dates worse than technology. And I will always talk about that floppy disk in the episode where <laughs> she's trying to put Angel's soul back in. It's like this vital piece of technology and there's this crappy looking floppy disk. Yeah, bless them. But you know what? You can only use what's relevant at the time, can't you? I, I will say that this episode made me realise how weak Luke looks. Because we're, we're set up that he's the biggest, baddest vampire around. He's a big guy. The last time someone got the jump on him was in the 1800s, and that's because he was asleep. He touches Buffy's necklace and then winces like a little girl and runs away. <laughs> and I'm like, I know Crossy's hurt vampires, but if we're meant to believe that this is this big guy that nobody can defeat, and then he's running away like that, just, I don't know, it just kind of defangs him a little bit. He's a little bit gay as well, isn't he? I don't know if you noticed that scene. Well, Josh Whedon is apologising for it in the commentary, where Luke is, uh, it's essentially, he's going to murder these kids, and then the strength is going to go into the master. But he's got to do a little ceremony first, putting blood on his head. The way it's shot, it looks like Luke's, you know, he's giving the master a blowjob. And it's so homoerotic. It's like, body is is your vessel. You will taste what I taste. I will have, yeah. He's sort of stroking his face. Luke's looking up at him, sort of trembling. I was like, have I put on the wrong DVD? Sorry. There's <laughs> <laughs> a hell of a moment, though. Yeah. Did you know the master has a name in the script? Oh, don't. It's going to be something like Bob or something. Isn't it? Go on. 
Heinrich Joseph Nest. Oh, no. Heinrich? Heinrich. Yeah, oh, I think he's meant to be Austrian or something originally. Yeah, no wonder he went for the master. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we don't learn his name. Okay, well, I now would like to draw your attention to the water reclamation plant that Sunnydale suddenly has. <laughs> seen in this episode and never, ever seen again. It's a good location, though. I will say that. It's just sort of like lots of industrial pipes and all of this, and it looks dramatic on the screen, but it's part of the ever-changing geography of Sunnydale. <laughs> <laughs> we gain this water reclamation plant. I love it. I, as we go through, please, can we do a list of every location that, sunny, like, that makes up Sunnydale? Because I think by the end, it's going to be about 15 times the size they're trying to pretend that it is. <laughs> and that's so funny because, you know, spoilers, at the end, the very last episode, we see that it's this small town. It's tiny, yeah. It, fall, it literally falls into a hole, doesn't it? Oh, sorry, spoilers. I've got to stop doing it. <laughs> Don't listen, Luke. Don't listen. Jesus Christ. <laughs> so the sunlight, you know, when um, she backs him up against the window and smashes the window and she's like, you forgot sunrise. That was a cut scene from the movie. Was it? Yeah. You know what? I remember watching that at the time and my first reaction was, oh, that's lame. And then my second reaction was, no, no, that's a good feint. Of course it is. And the way she just very, very quickly murders him. He doesn't really get much sense of ceremony with his death, does he? It's very quick. I was going to say, the death that bothered me more was the special effects they couldn't be bothered to do. So there's a bit where she uses a, a pool cue and she stabs a vampire with it. And then you just see the pool cue sort of go upwards <laughs> to, to suggest that the vampire is dead, but they don't cut to the special effect. I think the money might have run out of that point. Oh, yeah, they had no money then. That's, that's very evident coming up in the latest later episodes uh, i just wanted to bring up something i forgot to mention last week that I, well that i couldn't remember as we said that buffy was a mid-series replacement but we couldn't remember what for yeah it was for a series called savannah and series one shattered all expectations loads of views people were watching it people were loving it every review was like a solid seven out of ten it got the most views in wb's history up until that wow. point series what was it about it was about three women in Georgia, and they're like the archetypes, the naive rich girl, the, the fun-time girl, and you know the bookish girl, and they come into each other's lives, and they enhance them, and it was that kind of, like sex in the city, I suppose. Um, nobody came back for series two to watch it. Why was that? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe something else on another network launched during series two, but complete just ratings drop off. Well, that was summarily executed halfway through the second season. Yeah, and that that's what Buffy replaced with this show, Savannah. Well, Savannah, look, we apologise that you were cancelled, you know, with, without any sense of occasion, but thank God you were, because we never would have had Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which redefined genre television. I'm, I'm not sure Savannah would have been up to that. There's an alternate reality where you and I are doing a Savannah podcast now. Yeah, do you know what? We're, we're half... We're at the second episode right now. Actually, we could be at the second. Do you know what? I might check it out, you know, just the pilot, just to see what it was like. <laughs> There's another thing I wanted to bring up, and there were two producers last week that I couldn't remember. Go on. Okay, so that is Franz Rubel Kazooie and her husband Kaz Kazooie. And Franz directed the movie and her husband produced it. 
So they brought the rights to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So they own the rights for any kind of live action version of Buffy, any kind of adaptation, any kind of spin-off all in live action. But Joss Whedon owns the premise. So he can go and do books, he can go and do comics, or even he could do audio plays if he wanted to. But any sort of film or TV kind of reboot has to go via them. And they are the ones that wanted more money for the Giles spinoff. Uh, are they, they i think they're credited on every episode aren't they because that surname is one one that i recognize yeah. and they've never once been on set well i've also got a behind the scenes fact if okay. you're ready for it oh i'm sure you already know this because you do your research but john t kretschmer who was the director of this episode and i could tell it was a different director for this one I thought there was a, a physicality to the action sequences in the second episode and some real pace. <clears throat> the whole sequence where they're trying to escape the sewers and get up out into the sunlight, there was like real energy and real pace to those scenes. He was the assistant director on Jurassic Park. Oh, wow. Which is, you know, a heck of an honor. So, <laughs> yeah, so this is somebody who knows his stuff. I'll be interested to see because I'm not really au fait with the Buffy directors but I'm going to check him out as we go through this, whether he comes back or not, because that's a fairly big name for a pilot episode of a sort of a show that nobody's really thinking much of. I know a little bit more about the writers. Like I know Drew Goddard, who would write a few episodes of this, and Angel would go on to do Daredevil for Netflix, and he he's gone on to have a great career. But yeah, I don't know much about the directors. I should look into that. Well, I think as we go along, I think you do start getting sort of in-house directors that, you know, do sort of 30-odd episodes across the run. In fact, you know what? If you're a director on Buffy, right, if you're one of these ones that does a lot of episodes, and imagine you just you didn't score Hush or Once More With Feeling or The Body or any of the highlights, you know, you're like, what the hell am I not getting the sweet assignments? <laughs> what is going on here? Um, do you remember I said to you in the first episode about the sequence at the beginning where Dala murders her dates? So, you know, the very first scene. Yeah. I always thought that was a scene that defined Buffy for me. Actually, there's a scene in episode two, which I think is like just the coolest image of the first season. And absolutely, it's like the tone of Buffy perfectly. So it's as. Dala and the vampires come out of the dark towards the bronze in slow motion whilst this excellent song is playing. It is just like the quintessence of cool. And when I was a teenager, I can remember watching this and going, man, coolest bit of television. I'm never going to see anything cooler than this. And I just think that image there, that sort of appealing to the teens with the music, appealing to the horror fans with the vampires, you know, and and making it genre TV. The way this show strides all those things so confidently, so early, I think that's a great moment. I was sitting there watching it going, it's still cool. All these years later. I remember that. Yeah, I remember thinking it was really cool when Dala does like the turn round in slow-mo. Yeah. It's a bit sexy and as well, isn't it? You are right, you know, she is a bit sexy. Yeah. Oh, she is, yeah. <laughs> well, she's certainly sexier than David Boreanaz in this episode, who's stuck wearing this very bizarre new romantic shirt with an enormous collar. Did you see what he was wearing? Yeah, he's barely in this episode. But you know what? I'm a straight man. Let me just put this on record now. 90s Boreanaz could get some stuff from me. 
Oh, excuse me. Oh, my God. He, he could absolutely talk me into some stuff. Okay, right. Well, I'll stop my hair a bit more. <laughs> <then>. <laughs> like, I saw a picture doing the rounds on the social media this week of you mm. with a very angel-like haircut. Yeah, let, let me explain to the listeners. When I was like a teenager, I based my entire personality on Angel. So, yeah, I had the hair. I, I got a leather jacket. I wouldn't speak. I would sit in the dark. My fiance, I was so embarrassed because she listened and she's like, did you really used to sit in the dark? <laughs> I was like, yeah. All oh. your secrets are going to come out during the course of this podcast. You know, there'll be nothing from her. Anymore. I'll tell you another story about me pretending to be Angel. I went on a date with a girl and I went around the house to pick her up and a little brother answered the door and he shouted, it's Angel. Up until the birth of my kids, that was the happiest moment of my life. Oh, bless you. That is so sweet. <laughs> wow. Did you ever like the leather jacket and everything? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't I didn't have the exact one. I didn't go for the because you know, I didn't have the internet when this was on. So I just oh, I got just a leather jacket. And later on I'd want... get the long one, but I would just get a leather jacket. I'd spike my hair up. That's why I've got no hair now. I maintain that. Maybe I should go to Turkey and come back with some. But <laughs> Look, yeah. I, I, I don't want this to get too sexy, all right? But I'm really <laughs> pleased that, that you don't have that haircut anymore. Otherwise, you and I might have some problems on this podcast, okay? <laughs> I look more like master now. <laughs> that was a sexy look. When we bring this episode out, can you please put this uh, picture in the publicity somewhere? Because it's yeah. a sexy look. Yeah, that would, and I'd had cosmetic surgery that year because I had this horrendous overbite. So yeah, it's all kind of, this is like therapy now. Off you go. Come on. Basically, I had this horrendous overbite. It was terrible. And between the age of 10 and 18, I wore braces. At 16, they decided the braces aren't doing anything. The only way to fix this is surgery. So I had cosmetic surgery where they broke my jaw and reset it. So my whole teenage years, if I ever went on a date with a girl, it was because she wanted to make fun of me. And like I'd show up and then it'd be her and her mates laughing. From when I had that surgery and I was all healed and I was looking like Angel, I started to get noticed by girls. I didn't know how to react or be around a girl because I'd never had really had that experience. So I was like, right, who who do who do I think girls would like? And I was like, oh, David Boreanaz and Angel. So I went for that and I would just sit quietly. And what you don't realize as a teenager is Sitting quietly and being broody, that works for two minutes in a scene. That doesn't work when you're on a date with a girl and you're just sat. Yeah. It, it, pretty quickly, I, I dropped that after about two years. Oh, don't tell me you took a woman to dinner and sat there saying nothing. Oh, fucking hell. Oh, my God. You're amazing. Honestly. <laughs> You should never get dating tips from television, all right? <laughs> oh, okay, fine. If we're doing this, then I will tell you the story about when I peroxide my hair because I wanted to look like Spike. <laughs> I did it once, all right? And it came out this dreadful sort of white lemony colour. I looked terrible. I wanted to work the next day. My boss held the door up and just went... Oh my God. Anyway, <laughs> I was so desperate to get it back to, to a dark color. So I dyed it again, but I chose a, a, a hair dye that had too much red in it and it went bright orange. 
So then the next day, I tried it again, honestly, <laughs> and I went through five dyes. And eventually, I had to dye it black because I couldn't get it back to brown. Whatever I was doing, it was going another strange colour. So I looked like a bloody golf. I looked like a vampire from Buffy for about a week <laughs> as this dye was running through my hair. So folks, you're lucky you haven't gone like me, to be honest. Still there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's let's get back into the nuts and bolts mm. this episode. Interestingly, the only actual teenager in this entire first series is Mercedes McNabb that played Harmony. She was 16 when this started shooting. Yeah, like, you know, people take the piss, don't they, about sort of casting 20-somethings. I think they get away with it here. I mean, I they're clearly not well. They're supposed to be 17. I think. 16, 17, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're clearly sort of... I would I would have put them about twenty years old, but I think I do think they pull it off. And the harmony doesn't look significantly younger than anybody else. Oh. Well, they're all dressing up. They're all they're all trying to look. I keep saying the word cool, but you know what I mean. They're all trying to look a bit older than they are, just like kids in school do. I'd love to interview her because it must have been so weird for her being sixteen with all these older people pretending to be sixteen. But how how do you marry your performance? With that, that must have been really challenging as a young actress. Look, if there ever is a position to interview uh, Mercedes McNabb, uh, incidentally, the best name of an actor I've ever heard. <laughs> I just want to say to her, I've been looking for that moment in my life where I can have a slow motion fight with a geek, just like she did with Xander in Series 4. Do you remember? <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, it's blissful. we got some joy coming up. Um, <laughs> she wasn't going to be anything else but an actor with that name. No. It's like Benedict Cumberbatch. It's like, that's an actor's name. Well, I'm not sure. Maybe a philosopher with Cumberbatch. Maybe. Maybe. What do you think about this? So in the series one, I have learned that they were actually filming in a genuine graveyard. And then for series two, they had a custom-built graveyard. And Whedon says on the commentary that he prefers the series one approach because it just lends a sense of space that they didn't have when I think sort of come series six, they built an enormous graveyard where they can do sort of high angle shots and long shots and things like that. But I actually really noticed this. And I think there is a discernible difference in the production quality of the graveyard scenes between one and two, because suddenly it's all tight shots in series two, because they, they can't really shoot outside of the set. Yeah. I don't know how it is in America, but I know in the UK, you have to get permission to film in a graveyard. And there's a lot of logistical, like you can't show a specific gravestone. So maybe it's something like that. Maybe it, got, it just got too awkward not to show real gravestones, etc. So maybe that's why they, the set was built. Well, I can tell in the later seasons as well, they're sort of lighting. It's in-studio moonlight rather than natural moonlight. They can never quite get it right. Whereas in these in these early episodes, which are often sort of mocked for their production value, things like Teacher's Pet and things like that, I actually think those things look pretty impressive because they're on location. Oh, yeah, they look incredible. Do you think that the other vampires actually want the master to get out? Or is it like, you know, when you're younger and you've got that annoying friend, nobody really likes him, but, you know, his dad's got a box at Arsenal or he knows someone that can get concert tickets and he's just kind of like, yeah, we'll hang around with him, but he's a prick. I kind of viewed that the other vampires are viewing him that way. Like they've got a pretty good life at the moment. You know, it's 1997. They've got the internet's just becoming a thing. They've got DVDs. They've got CDs. They're having a great time. And then he wants to come and put the earth back in hell. 
Do you think there's any part of them that's being a bit sloppy deliberately so he has to stay down there? The trouble is we don't really see any scenes from their point of view, so we're never going to know, are we? There is a very funny fact about the extras in those scenes because Whedon points out that for the rest of the season, the acolytes of the master no longer appear. And that's because they couldn't afford the extras. They had a bit more money for the first two episodes. And he goes, and as well, you know, they're all supposed to be in full vamp makeup and all of this. We couldn't afford it. He goes, so if you look really closely, the camera's panning around that church set, and it's just a load of people in robes. And we don't explain who they are. What are they vampires? Like, who knows? So can we keep an eye out, please, for the master scenes in later? episode yeah i want to know if there's anyone else there i think it might just be that little kid the anointed one. Oh god i'm spoiling again <laughs> and if big finish ever get the rights those road people are absolutely getting their own series oh no you say that three times it will come true all right <laughs> we don't need any more from them i would actually love an audio adaptation of buffy I'd like to see what they could do now. Yeah, I think there's been enough time. And from what you said from the comics, there's certainly, you know, the want for more yeah. stories. I mean, there's yeah. books coming out. There's uh, a recent book about Willow's daughter. Like Willow's got a daughter and she's a witch and she's got a group of friends and they're solving crimes and stuff. And there's a book about Spike coming out next month. There's still an appetite for this stuff. You know, in fact, you could do a podcast solely about Buffy comics. There's a oh, lot them now that you would never run out of content. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, are we going to be exploring some of that as we go through this? Because I'm, I'm intrigued. I think what, what, what we'll do is maybe we'll look at season eight first and we'll see how we'll get on. Okay. Good idea. I've got a question for you then about vampires. Okay. Relevant to this series. I don't think they're ever quite as scary as this again like we get very knowing with vampires as we go along don't we and very often we've got a graveyard scene that it's a character moment and a vampire jumps out and buffy just dusts him and that's that every now and again we're introduced to a new character who is a vampire like spike who's initially quite scary and then you know becomes part of the ensemble so he's quite likable whereas i feel like in this they're really good. You said Lost Boys in the last episode, and I really yeah. felt it in part two when they attack the bronze and they're sort of murdering their way through the kids. And I think it's probably, it might be at its most of it, the, the, just the vampire angle and, and sort of leaning into the horror of vampires. And that's a sorry thing to say in the first episode when we've got seven seasons to watch. But what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I mean, the, there is stuff that has done vampires well since. I think they've done really well in the first Blade movie and Blade 2. But it's kind of difficult because we're all kind of attracted to vampires. That That's why they've maintained for so long. And it's difficult to strike the balance between them being evil and us wanting to be them. And I know that Joss Whedon, his whole point was the the monsters were metaphors for getting through a teenage life. So he never he never wanted Angel to like be a lead. He he wanted him to be like gone within seven episodes and defeated. But WB loved David Boreanaz. Teenage girls loved him. Teenage boys wanted to be him. They were going on dates and not saying anything. So <laughs> he got talked into making this love interest. But if you watch these early episodes, Xander is very clearly meant to be the love interest. 
Yeah. Although that develops very quickly, doesn't it, in series yeah. one? Well, it's very clear very early that Buffy's not interested. So we have like a, a season-long unrequited love story. And I'm just going to, little spoiler for the future of the podcast, I do find that a bit weary and come the sort of mid to the end of series one. I'm like, oh, come on, Zander, move on. Where they finally allow him to have a romance with, I shall not spoil this thing because it's brilliant when we get to it. It was long past time that he moved on. So I think, do you think the intention was never then for it to be Buffy and Angel? It was to be Zander and Angel. Zander and Angel, Zander and Buffy, sorry. I'm so sorry. You put the wrong DVD in again, Joe. Oh, no, I know. It's just wishful thinking, that's all. I really think if Angel hadn't been a hit with audiences and network executives, I think it would have been Buffy and Xander, with Willow being the unrequited love angle for the series. Yeah, I mean, that's it's an enticing idea. I just don't know how that would play out, given how this series does play out, you know? Yeah. Like, going back to what you said about the makeup of this episode, this episode did change the fangs. Because Eric Belfour, who played Jesse, really struggled to speak with the fangs in. So they developed a new type of fang and decided that the old ones would only go to like background extras or vampires that only had a line or two. Because he was really struggling with his S's. Um, and I think you can tell that a lot throughout the whole series. Like when Spike first comes into it, he really struggles we keep jumping ahead we shouldn't yeah, don't matter but, I, do you know i what i really loved about um the jesse storyline we talked in the first episode about the shock joss whedon shocking the audience by killing off one of the regulars so soon i was watching it and i was like do you know what i might wait for the end of the season and it would have had a huge impact then if we'd have got to know him or we'd had 12 episodes with him and killed him off then but conversely, I thought the scene where Xander stakes him, and very quickly as well, um, I thought that was beautifully done. And there's a line, actually, one of the quotes that I wrote down, uh, where Giles says, in a spectacular moment of zero taste and empathy, says, Jesse is dead. You're not looking at your friend. You're looking at the thing that killed him. And that's almost like a mission statement for the series there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I love that line from Giles. And I love the way he delivers it because they've been running to get to LeBron, so he's all he's all breathy. But Eric Belfort's performance in this is so good because in the first episode he's the unconfident kind of geek. But then when he's dancing with Cordelia here, he's like, shut up. And he's the confident he's the he man he knows she wants. Sexy as hell in those dancing scenes. And yeah, the way the way Joss Whedon writes it and the way Eric Belfort plays it where he just goes up to her and goes shut up and just sort of entices her onto the dance floor you see that sort of seductive nature of the vampires honestly if there were vampires around where I lived I, I wouldn't last a minute I'm saying I'll be dead <laughs> by the end of the week <laughs> we didn't talk about the theme music last week by Nerf Herder I'll do that every time you say it you know I skipped it last night and I felt wrong you skipped the music. I skipped it and it felt wrong. I won't do it again because it, it, it felt like I didn't fully embrace or experience episode two. No, I love it because I watch it every time because they do so many clips as well. I'm going, that's the witch. That's teacher's pet. <laughs> that's angel. <laughs> I'm trying to guess the episodes. And then obviously they shake it up every year, don't they? Yeah, yeah. You know, you the, the bit, the bit that's not in the first two episodes, but is in series one after after this episode, is the bit where the woman screams. She goes, "Ah!" 
Oh yeah. And there's like a it's not in the first two. I don't know why. And that's the scene from the next episode as well, The Witch. Yeah. So they they got the job because Alison Hannigan knew who they were. And she'd oh, seen really? them perform. And when Joss was looking for someone to do the theme music, she was like, Oh, you should check out this band. And then he met with them and they composed that song. But a lot of bands that appear in this series were unsigned LA bands that were around because they, they had no budget in this first series. So they would go to these like open mic nights, find bands that they liked and then bring them onto the series. I think Dingo's Ate My Baby is actually a real band. Don't you think that's what works about it is they are the sort of bands that would be playing in the Bronx. Yeah, if it, if it was sort of bands we knew, famous bands coming in, which is what you know a big channel would do now, and it would kind of take you out of it a bit. I think every now and again we do with like Amy Mann's in one episode, isn't she? Yeah, um, and a few others that I sort of recognise, but they're still sort of on the fringe. I gotta say, I love all, the the sequences in the Bronze because I really like live music. I love all the bands they get in throughout the run. I think they do a really like they they choose them brilliantly. Yeah, it's also interesting. There's no band in this episode, which is why they're not charging a cover <laughs> entry fee. But yeah, I really believe that guy's ripping off the bronze. He must. I, I was really watching as well. You remember that fact I dropped about the fact that the exterior of the bronze is the exterior of the warehouse where they shoot. Yeah. So inside that is the school and the library and everything like that. It just blows my mind to think like that. Sometimes I feel like I shouldn't probe into the behind the scenes too much because I'm I'm there now watching the show in a completely different way. But that was such that's a really savvy use of resources, I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Use what you what you have. Yeah. I mean, later on, you know, when we go out onto that high street with the Sunnydale sign, if I find out that's in a studio, that's not outside. Is it not? Oh, I don't know, but I'm scared. That's what I'm going to find out. Because <laughs> it's really well shot. It, it seems is. like it's outside. But I never see breath or anything like that on the impulse map. So I'm scared in my studio. Who knows? That's a good point. That's a good point. The great thing about this episode is it builds up the relationships and we get character evolution. Even Giles softens a little bit. You love the bit at the end where, you know, not just vampires, could be werewolves and succubuses and things like that. He's getting really excited talking to them. I, I said last week that I thought Alison Hannigan might be the MVP. It might be Anthony Stewart Hedge, you know. He just, he anchors all the actors, I think, in that ensemble. And in that last scene, don't you think they just, when you look at an ensemble and you say, you know, they've got it, yeah. But usually it takes a year in that last scene of this episode where they're just cracking jokes and they're going off talking about, you know, going to the mall whilst the apocalypse comes. And then Giles turns to the camera and goes, oh, the earth is doomed or whatever it is that he says. I was just like, they had it literally from the first story. They had it. Yeah, it's it's such a great interaction with that with that moment. I think, yeah, Anthony Stewart had lends a bit of credibility to this series. I don't know if any of the Americans would have known who he was at the time. Well, he's just a British bloke. You know, they all love the British accent. You and me do very well over there. At the moment I laughed, laughed in this way, it's where Flutie catches her trying to leave school. And he's like, oh, yeah. maybe that's how they do things in Britain. But, you know, they've got that royal family and all those other problems. Do you know what? I really don't want Principal Flutie to die. Oh, spoiler. Sorry. <laughs> because, um, oh, he's so cute, isn't he? I think he's only in that one scene, remember? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think we see much more of him before 
uh, the episode where he goes. I wonder if they thought the character wasn't working or the actor wasn't very good. Yeah, possibly. Because, I don't know, maybe because the original actor, Stephen Tabowski, was he's a big name. People might not know his name, but they know him. They're like, oh, it's that, it's that guy from that thing. Maybe Prince, uh, Principal Fruit. Oh, it's, I always stumble on that. I get a right spoonerism. I say Principal fr- Fruity. <laughs> Principal Fruity. <laughs> Maybe it was originally bigger and it got reduced because they had to replace him. And then maybe the, the replacement actor was like, well, it's this small part. I'm not going to be around. Who knows? From now, from now on, he shall be known as Principal Fruity. He's <laughs> <laughs> not around long enough for that to be a problem. Don't worry. <laughs> there was a couple of other bits of dialogue that I wrote down that I really loved. One bit that made me howl early on and it, very quickly showed the chemistry between Sarah Michelle Gellar and Alison Hannigan. It's the sequence where she goes, I need to sit down. You are sitting down. There was a whole <laughs> sequence there where Willow's so traumatized by everything. And what is it? Someone just says, um, I'm going to go, go on a limb and say that vampires are not good. I don't like vampires. Like just that whole scene there. I think they refine that dialogue as they go along. And I remember sort of mid to the end of series two, it's just razor sharp. The the group scene dialogues are are absolutely razor. But I think it's here. I think I think whatever magic this cast managed to sort of dig up, it's here in this first episode. I keep saying it, but that's rare. It's unusual. Because usually you're you sort of finding your feet with your pilot and then you're finding out what works in your first series. I don't think there's any sign of that here at all. It's almost like it's almost like they know how good this is, you know? Oh, absolutely. Uh, my fiance wanted me to talk about Willow, actually, and how much, how much Willow meant to her growing up because she was this girl who wasn't into the conventional stuff that teenagers are into. Like her dad's a wildlife expert, so she would go off on bird watching holidays and you know she's got favorite insects and and stuff like that and she wanted me to just convey to the audience and to you how much willow meant to her as somebody that wasn't part of the cool kids wasn't necessarily a nerd but dressed a bit quirky had hobbies and interests that weren't typical of a teenager and yeah she really identified with willow back in the day that's lovely. I um I had a conversation with my mate P, who I'm hoping to entice onto this at some point because he loves Buffy. And as he was watching it, he was like, "Oh yeah, you know, I see myself as as Xander, you know, not Xander. Sorry, I see myself as Angel, sort of brooding, cool guy, you know." And then he realised, sort of somewhere between series two and three, oh no, I'm Willow. I'm the, <laughs> I'm the mousy one. I'm the one who always does my homework early. I'm the one that everyone relies on for help with things you know there's there is something effortlessly likable about her and sympathetic and i think that's that's the key there she's the most sympathetic character so yeah yeah and that's what my that's why they do terrible things to her throughout this series because that's how they break our hearts i'm wondering how much of an effect american pie had on willow if any because the character really changes after american pie when when was that so American Pie was 1999, and that's this is... 97. So after American Pie, Willow becomes a little bit more self-assured, a little bit more confident. It's probably just a coincidence, but you know, in American Pie, she tells us what she does with her flute. Maybe they were like, okay, we can make Willow a little bit more adult. You mean a fruit, don't you? A fruit, yeah. Yeah. A um, fruity. Well, then come 
come season six, she's bloody terrifying. Oh, yeah. But do you know what? I don't, I don't have huge amounts more to say about The Harvest other than it's a spectacular success. And like anyone who thinks that you and I are just going to sit here and say to each other, this show is incredible week after week. We've got Never Kill a Boy on a First Date and Teacher's Pet coming up very soon. And I do have some issues with those episodes. <laughs> it isn't just going to be a mad loving. But credit where it's due, this is an incredible first two episodes of this show. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you, you don't really get many shows that get this much right this early. And I think it's testament to the creative team, it's testament to the performances. Everything is here. The essence of what Buffy will become is all here in these first two episodes. Do you think you could watch Welcome to the Hellmouth and The Harvest and Chosen back-to-back and still be watching the same sort of show? No, the characters change too much. You need to witness the evolution. That's true. And actually, I think tonally it's very different come Chosen as well. But I will say that is another massive strength for Buffy, is that it is willing to transform and progress as it goes along and take its characters on a huge journey. Like they they effectively grow up, don't they, by Chosen? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's great. Like I said, I was 16 when it started, 17 when I started watching, and I was 23 when it ended. So I followed these characters on their journey through my life as well. And yeah, when I was 23, I was different to when I was at 16. Think think about that expanse of time and what you experience between the age of 16 and 23. You, you probably have your first love in between that time and that, that changes you, that first heartbreak. Nothing breaks your heart worse than that first love. That There's nothing that comes after that's as bad as that. No matter how bad it gets, the heartbreak is never the same. I I remember watching the you know when Willow has her heart broken in series four, not too many spoilers there, and she's crying her head off, and I remember going, "Oh come on, love, yeah, calm down." Then a few years later, I had my heart broken, and honestly, I made Alison Hannigan look very subtle in comparison. I was sort of <laughs> screaming into a cushion, snot flying everywhere. It was ugly tears. <laughs> now, and actually, do you know that's why season six hits as strongly as it does for me because i think it so beautifully captures that when you suddenly realize you're an adult and things aren't as exciting as an adult as you thought they were going to be and you make a lot of silly mistakes and you go to dark places i just think they capture that so brilliantly in that season but that's all to come at the moment we're in high school you know, we're living it up. We're enjoying time with our friends and we're murdering vampires. It's the high life, baby. <laughs> what more could you want? <laughs> Nothing, really. Growing, right. up, growing up is uh, overrated. Oh, yeah. Stay young. Become a vampire and stay that, <laughs> stay that way for age. But that, uh, that would be horrible, actually. Imagine getting turned into a vampire when you're like 16 and then spending the rest of your life, ha- life having to show ID. And then eventually that ID expires because you, you, you know, that you could no longer have been born in 1982 or whatever. That that must be hard. I don't know, Mark. It's quite hard at 16, you know. I'm not sure I'd object too much to looking like that for the rest of my life. No, immortality is desperately overrated. I think it would be awful. Imagine watching everybody you love die. Oh, no, you'd be evil. It wouldn't matter. You'd probably kill them. 
Yeah, that's true. <laughs> We've gone somewhere very dark here, haven't we? <laughs> and on that note, that's where we'll leave this episode. Joe, thanks once again for joining me. I'm looking forward to next week when we get to talk about The Witch. Yeah, can I say one thing about The Witch? Yeah, go on. Macho, macho man. I want to be a macho man. Oh, man, we're going to see some cheerleading, baby. So... I just wanted to thank anyone who's listened so far, especially if you've been in touch. We've had some wonderful feedback and really positive responses to this podcast. And even some really big Buffy podcasts have started following our Instagram, which I've now created. So yeah, if you search for us on the Instagram, we're Bite Me Buffy Pod. Come check us out. We're here to interact with you. And I can only mirror what Martin's saying. Thank you so much. And this is just the beginning. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you should cut it there.